Um, we're glad that you're spending time with us this morning. And as Scott mentioned, I am really excited about some of the things we're doing to get ready for people to come back. Uh, some areas of our church you're not going to recognize, and and um, but I'm looking forward to the time where we can be in the room together. Uh, one of the things I'm going to be reaching out to some of you about in the coming days and weeks is we've got a new production room where we can do some interviews and things, and I want to talk to you about life and faith and work and things and just have a chance to help everyone get to know each other again. And we also have some new folks that are joining us now. We have some folks that are joining us online from Chattanooga area, and some of you are joining us from all other parts of the country as well. And uh, we're just thankful that you're doing that. Um, We're looking forward to launching and kicking off some things, um, and hopefully we'll know when that's going to be very soon as our numbers continue to drop. Uh, Kids go back in Hamilton County. If you're in a Hamilton County school, you should be going back to five-day-a-week school this week. So really good progress in all the things that we're seeing uh, and hoping that that just continues to decline until it's gone. So we'll continue to pray to that end. We're continuing to get things ready to spruce things up. And, you know, some sometimes uh, are a lot of us at home. Uh, I remember during the initial weeks of uh, covid you would drive past Lowe's and Home Depot, and they were absolutely packed uh, because we were stuck at home all the time. We looked around and thought, you know, we really should probably do something about some of this stuff and uh, do that long enough here at church, and we looked around and saw some things that we need to take care of here too. So uh, looking forward to all of the things that are coming, and I'm honestly looking at uh, kind of this spring and summer, I hope, as a, a relaunch Uh, that we get to meet some new folks. And I do believe that we are in a a time of great change in our community, uh, that people are looking for something different. Interestingly enough, throughout this last uh, year, the Bible app, YouVersion, has been one of the most downloaded apps for the past year. Last month, it topped the charts for part of the month as the most downloaded app for the month. There is a massive change in the way people are engaging life right now, and we need to be aware of that. That's one of the reasons that we are talking about the tribe of Issachar and reading the signs of the times, knowing what to do, recognizing this right now, this right here could be a beautiful time for the church to engage its community and to demonstrate to a people who are asking new questions that, hey, there is something real to our faith, which is what we're talking about today. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about emotions. Uh, We started off talking about some of those emotions that you're not supposed to talk about. You're not supposed to even have if you're supposed to be a good Christian. You're not supposed to be sad. You're not supposed to have anxiety. You're not supposed to be angry. But the reality is, is we are all those things. And not only are we those things, Jesus had those emotions too, which throws the idea that a really good Christian is never anxious, it completely throws that out the window. The idea that a good Christian is never angry throws that out the window. That a good Christian is never sad or that somehow you're doing something wrong if you're sad. Jesus was sad. Jesus wept. So uh, there are lots of emotions that Jesus demonstrates to us. Uh, Then we began talking about joy. And joy, if you haven't watched the Joy Week, uh, which was two weeks ago, I encourage you to do that because joy is that thing that makes Christians so unique and it's supposed to characterize our lives. But when we define joy as happiness, we completely miss, not maybe not completely, but a good portion of what joy truly is because you can be have joy and still struggle with anxiety. You can have joy and still be sad. You can have joy and still be 
angry at times. Joy is so much bigger, so much more complex than the simple concept of happiness. Last week we talked about hope, and the truth is is that we are in a time where we are between stuff. We are between what has been and we're between what is. We're not exactly sure what is. We kind of know what has been, and we're right now in between. And so hope is that moment in which we tie back to our memories of the past And we tie forward to our hopes for what should be. And we spent a good time talking about hope. Last week we said hope is the language of possibility. It's the language of possibility. So what can be, what should be, that is where our hopes are. We also said that hope has a short game and a long game. And the difference between the short game and the long game is, am I just hoping for me right now? Am I just trying to have hope for my immediate circumstances Or am I looking long-term for all of humanity's problems? Am I looking for uh, hope for others, not just for myself? And can I label hope something that is for others and not just for me? Hope is so many-faceted, and we often confuse it with what we're going to talk about today, which is faith. Faith and hope are not the same thing. Now, they go hand-in-hand, but they are still separate emotions, Now, when we look through Scripture, we find that Jesus himself felt hope and he felt faith. And last week, Karen Pollard sent me this. I told her I was going to share this today. She put together after our our, uh, teaching week last week that hope is having our problems erased, which I thought was great. I thought it was a great way to just summarize what we what took me a, an hour. Thank you, Karen. It took me an hour to talk about it. It took you those four lines. But hope is um, having our problems erased, not just ours, but others in the future. That is what we hope for. And then she followed that up with faith. And so we'll talk a little bit about this and some other things this morning. That faith is facing all incoming trials head on. Those were great Uh, definitions of hope and faith. Maybe you've got some as well. But I did challenge you last week. I don't know how you did on your challenge. I don't know how reflective you are right now. Those of you who are struggling with anxiety, struggle to be reflective because your mind races in one direction. Being reflective means your mind has to kind of wander in all kinds of directions. But I, I, I gave you the simple question, what is the not yet for you? What is the not yet for you as an individual? And what are you hoping for? What problem do you see for yourself and you have hope that that problem is going to be erased? And and what about community-wise? What problems do we have as a community? What are our hopes for our community and how it relates to other people? So what is your not yet? What is your not yet for all of humanity? What is that hope that is the long game, that is the big picture? Today I want to talk a little bit about faith, and I I just want to warn you, one of the things that I want to share with you is I think that we have a real problem with our language around faith, and some of the things and some of the ways we talk about faith is not actually biblical faith. Some of the, the language we use, the words we use, the expectations of what faith is are not biblical at all, and I just want to let you know that throughout this these next few minutes... I'm going to share with you a, a few things about what faith is. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about what blind faith is. And then I am also going to get some teaching help this morning from three different places. Uh, one, 
Uh, I'm going to get some help from Indiana Jones in a very misunderstood and misleading clip on faith. I'm going to get a little bit of help from Abe Lincoln and get a little bit of help from Darth Vader. So if you are a serious Bible student, I know you are super excited for these next few minutes. Um, In addition, I want to talk about where do we go from here? What does this mean? For all of the emotions we're talking about, Jesus experienced them. So let's dive in. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be mostly in Hebrews 11, but I'm going to jump around a little bit and I'm going to have to jump around to some different translations because different translations give different ideas around this idea of faith. For the most part, our greatest teaching of faith comes from the book of Hebrews. And for most people, if you have a key verse that talks about faith, it is going to be in a couple of different places in Hebrews, which we're going to hit both of those today. So let's dive in. But what I do want you to know is that Jesus himself had faith, which seems like it's a little bit of cheating. Like Jesus is the son of God. He, he hovered over the expanses, and when God said create, it was Jesus who actually did the creating of the heavens and the earth. So when we think about faith compared to our faith, and Jesus had faith, we think, oh, Jesus cheated. <laughs> you know, you're the son of God. You know how all this stuff works. And... We don't have that same opportunity. We're going to address that as well. But I do want you to see a couple of places where Jesus was in uncomfortable situations where he had to trust and he had to have faith and he had to believe and he had to have evidence that something was real. One uh, is from Matthew 27. Both of these are at the time of his death. Matthew 27 in the New Living Translation says, At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. At about 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? For us, the component of faith that says I'm uncertain about my place in this world and about God and God's care for me, even though Jesus is the Son of God, and as we understand the Trinity, he is one of the three persons of God. How many times do we at times feel forsaken ourselves? And our faith has to have room for feeling forsaken. He demonstrates it further. We read this in Luke 23, uh, right as he is dying, he says this, uh, by this time it was about noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone and suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. Now we know the rest of that story in which Jesus is going to walk out of a grave. He's going to live again. He is resurrected. But at this point, Jesus goes through this faith exercise where he feels abandoned. And then as he breathes his last, he entrusts his spirit into his father's hand. See, Jesus had faith. He had to have faith. And though we don't fully understand all the ways that Jesus you know, worked through his fully human and fully God, we know that in some ways he did restrict himself from his divinity as he lived in this world. He tells us that he did. So let's look at the basic question, even through what Jesus had. Let's look at the basic question is what is faith? Now, if you study any scripture whatsoever, 
uh, probably the first verse that comes to mind when we're talking about faith, and you need a definition for faith, is going to come from Hebrews 11.1. 1. So this is what Hebrews 11.1 1 in the English Standard Version says. Maybe this is how you understand faith. Um, I will tell you up front, this is an incomplete understanding of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 in the ESV says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, we're going to unpack that in a minute. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. And one of the problems, I'll just tell you up front, if this is how we we hinge all of our expectations of what faith is on the words of assurance and conviction, I want you to know the problem with biblical faith is, is that it requires more than just assurance and conviction. It actually requires something. When we just say it's assurance or conviction, then what we have a tendency to do is to say, you need to work up your faith. You need to kind of create your faith. You need to just convince yourself that this is true. And if you want to honor God, you just have to convince yourself, despite whatever else you see in the world, that this has to be true. Because if, if it is, I don't want to be left behind when it's time for us to go to heaven. The problem is, is that is not how. Jesus or Paul in this instance or in Hebrews, we don't even know if Paul is the author. It's the pastor. We don't know exactly who the author is saying that faith is more than that. I believe faith is more than that. Hebrews eleven six also says this. It's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him, which means faith. There's a lot riding on faith for us Christians. There's a lot of talk right now about the number of people who are leaving the church. There's a lot of talk about people who are leaving faith. They have decided throughout this pandemic, I stopped going to church and I really didn't mind and I really didn't care. And I believe absolutely that that applies to people. Maybe that applies to a whole lot of people. I would just say this, if that is the case, if a person is walking away because in the midst of the pandemic, I haven't gone to church and I haven't missed it, I would say this, then you have a different understanding of faith than how Jesus did. You didn't see faith the same way. In fact, before the pandemic, you didn't actually have faith. Now, can I say that without being a complete jerk? (laughs) Yes, I can. And I'm going to tell you why. Because faith is way more important than convincing ourselves something is true. Faith is way more important than how we feel about something. Faith is way more important than an activity that we walk into a church, and it involves way more than just how we spend our time. It involves way more than how we feel, even though a lot of people equate faith with a feeling. Faith is really wrapped up in our minds and how we think, what we see, what we hear, and how we respond to what we see and what we hear. So stay with me as we're going to Kind of go through this, and we're going to understand what this is. In Hebrews, what you're going to find is in the first 10 chapters, you're going to find a really great um, handling of who Jesus is, why he came in the form of a man, him dying on the cross. He becomes our great high priest, and he is the reason that we have faith. That's Hebrews 1 through 10. And then when we get into Hebrews 11, which is one of the best handlings in all of of the New Testament on faith, we get to understand it a little differently. And and how are we supposed to respond to this reality that Jesus has introduced for us? At the end of Hebrews chapter 10, right before Hebrews 11, 1, which is the verse about what faith is, it says this. 
For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What is promised? What are those promises that we hope so much in and have so much faith in? What are the promises that when we read them, they they not only bring us hope, but they bring us rest and peace and joy. But we have hope that we would receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. There's that word. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In other words, those who truly have faith that preserve their faith and are saved are those that persevere. And how do we persevere? But yet we have confidence in the promises. The bigger question is why do we have confidence in the promises? And if we're going to really handle faith accurately and in a way that our community cares about anything that we believe in, we do have to ask ourselves, why do we have confidence in these promises? See, working yourself up just so that you can say, I am convinced of something, well, we've seen how that works out. (laughs) You can work yourself up and say, this is going to happen, but it doesn't mean it's real. How do we go to somebody and we say, Jesus is real? How, How do we give that to them if if they believe our faith is about, well, I've just convinced myself it's real. I, there are a lot of people that convince themselves of things that I am myself don't want to be associated with. But if it's real, real, I want to know about it. I'm guessing you do too. So does our community, which is why our community is losing faith in some of the things that they have been structuring their lives by and the promises that they have. And now they're looking for an older route to faith in a better thing, which is why I think the Bible app is being downloaded and read and used so much. People are looking for faith in more trustworthy ways. I guess the basic question we have to answer is, is Christianity a trustworthy place to put your faith? I'll tell you, I also want to share some problems we have with this because right now we're getting a lot of black eyes in the church around faith that maybe faith isn't real. We tend not to talk about them because we're a little afraid somebody's going to call us out and somebody's going to say, well, maybe your faith isn't real. I'm telling you, if you understand faith in the way that this pastor, the author of Hebrews, describes it, I'm going to just tell you, you do not struggle with is this real or not. You know it's real. Why is that? Why is that? Let's go through kind of how we have in the last few weeks and understand the language problem we have with faith, and let's start with English. Now, we're not going to talk about Hebrew today. We're going to talk about Greek today. But I want us to start with English because, as I've said in the last few weeks, the English language is a terrible language to understand biblical concepts. It's the language we speak, and that therefore it's the language we go to. But our language disappoints us when it comes to many of the deeper um, pieces of theology, doctrine, and just understanding faith. So if we were to look up a definition of faith in English, you're going to find something like this. Faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. That may be your definition of faith. I just have complete confidence. Why? 
Why do you have complete confidence? The other definition is, is really not all that helpful. It's actually worse. It says, strong belief in God or in the doctrines of religion. And that would be okay if it stopped there, but it doesn't. Based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. So why would anyone be interested in our faith if it's based on apprehension and not proof? Like if you have no other choice, like maybe Jesus can help you. Maybe. We have no proof. Maybe he can. Maybe he can't. As you're probably guessing, there's a component of faith that involves proof. How do we have proof? How do we know this is real? How do we know this is how this all works? Is spiritual apprehension really the cornerstone of what it means to have faith? Like, I'm just uncertain about all this, so you know what? I'm just going to believe in Jesus. Well, I can tell you there are a lot of people that that are really happy in their faith solely on spiritual apprehension. Like, I just feel something's different. But I'll just tell you that is not the way the Bible talks about faith. It is way more concrete. It is way more based on proofs. So what are those proofs? You're probably asking that question. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Hebrews 11.1 again in the ESV. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So if we go back and we look at the original Greek of this uh, verse, you're going to find two very important words that describe what faith is. Those words assurance and conviction in the ESV are the Greek words apostasis and alongkos. And so if we were to read those Greek words into the English, it would say, now faith is the apostasis of things hoped for, the alongkos of things not seen. So what do those words mean? Those, understanding those words probably give us, give us a better understanding of what faith really is. So apostas, that is often um, defined as assurance, means the underlying state or underlying substance, and is the fundamental reality that supports all else. So assurance is the idea that there's something of substance here that is so real that everything else is based on off of this. There's a foundation of reality that gives us faith. Not of feeling, not of apprehension, not of, well, maybe I have no other choices, I'll trust in Jesus. But there is a foundation of reality that we can trust that these are real. And as a result, what we'll find is that faith changes us. Because real faith can't be dormant. Real faith can't sit there and not change us. That's apostasis. Alonkos literally means a proof That by which a thing is proved or tested. It can also be defined as a conviction. So here we have two very important words for our faith. And this is where the church often goes wrong. It, It is not just assurance and conviction. It is reality and proof. Now, if you were in a court of law, could you sit down and say, okay, Tell us why you have faith. Well, let me tell you about the reality and let me give you my proof. Most of us would say you can't do that. Most of us would say that is impossible. You can't have proof. That's the whole point of faith is that you trust in something that you can't prove. And absolutely there is a 
piece of that. But when we remove reality and proof from our hope, what do we really have other than fairy tales? Which is why so many people say Christianity is a fairy tale. If there's no evidence, if there's no place that's rooted in reality, why in the world would you spend your life doing this? Why in the world would the apostles die following Jesus? Why would Jesus be up on the cross if none of this was real? Why would we give tithes and offerings to the church when we could spend all that money on ourselves? Why would we serve our community because, you know what, let them take care of themselves? Why would we show up after we've had a hard day of work and sit in a class with a bunch of toddlers as they trample our soul deep down until we can get to go to lunch, right? No, that's not it. We all love our toddlers, but you know how those weeks go. It's just been a hard, exhausting week. Sometimes I wish I could have a charger just like my phone does, and sometimes in the middle of the day I plug my charger in so I can use it so it's while it's going dead. I don't have one of those chargers. I have to go to sleep. I wish I could plug myself in so I could keep working even when I'm tired. It doesn't work that way. Why do we subject ourselves to things that cost us stuff? Why do we sacrifice? Why do we show up here on Sundays or online right now? Why do we do these things if we're not certain they're real? One of the problems with the American church and the problem with the English understanding of faith is that we put all this against the backdrop of spiritual apprehension, and that is not enough for me to be engaged in a church. And guess what? It isn't enough for most people anymore. So what is faith? If we were to understand hypostasis and a long cost, in these understandings where faith is assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen, but we're talking about the underlying substance of reality that supports everything else, and proof is a thing that has been tested. Maybe our reading of this verse would go something more like this. I have absolute confidence in the reality of something that I am hoping for because of the evidence I've seen. But I don't have absolute proof that it is going to happen, which is that component of faith that we hope for. We haven't seen it yet with our eyes. I have absolute confidence in the reality of something that I am hoping for because of the evidence I've seen, but I don't have absolute proof that it's going to happen or it's going to turn out the way we hope it will. So there is that element of uncertainty, but that uncertainty has some evidence of reality and proof to let us trust and hope in it. The New Living Translation translates Hebrews 11.1 in a little better way and understands these Greek words a little better. It says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Proof, reality, evidence. These are the founding building blocks of faith. Again, I wonder, can we, in a court of law, really tell someone what the proof is for our faith? This means... Biblical faith doesn't start with emotion or feeling. It means biblical faith must start with evidence, which means we must use our reason, which means we have to use our thinking instead of the common understanding of apprehension or emotion. 
But faith is an exercise in reason. When we sit down and we talk to somebody about our faith, do we sit down and do we reason with them? Or do we say, well, I just have hope in it and that I have faith and that just makes me feel better about life. That, that may be absolutely 100% true, but that doesn't mean you're going to lead anyone else to want to have that either. They'll just put that in something else. Biblical faith has to start with evidence. It has to start with reason. It has to start with thinking. And if we're going to show up here and we're going to sacrifice financially, sacrifice our time, if we're going to have people bombard us with insults because we have faith in Christ and faith in what he has said through Scripture, if if we're going to take shots from the left and from the right, if we're going to go and we're going to take the coats off our back to give it to someone who doesn't have one, Shouldn't we have something more than apprehension or feeling behind it to say this is the way to spend your life? This is one of the reasons I think so few people follow Jesus today. Even at times people who come to church regularly because their faith is not actually faith. It's something else. It's not the kind of faith that the apostles understood. It's not the kind of faith that Jesus talked about. We stake our lives on these things. We have no evidence whatsoever that this thing we're talking about is real. Why would the apostles have staked their lives on this thing? That just seems foolish. That is not what it means to have faith. If we follow that line of reasoning, if we follow that thread that biblical faith starts with evidence and with reason and with thinking then doesn't that mean that we have to critically assess the components of Christianity to decide, is this real or is this not? Is this a social construct or is there some basis in reality for this thing? Shouldn't we have that discussion which leads the Christian, just like with anxiety, anger, and sadness, to ask different questions than we often ask today? Maybe it's okay to be sad. Maybe it's okay to be anxious. Maybe it's okay to be angry. Maybe it's okay to question God. I don't know how you reason or think or you look for evidence without questioning both sides, whether for or against, to say God's real and not real, to look for the evidence in your own life or in the lives of others to say, no, I I, I don't think that's right. Maybe things we grew up learning in the church, maybe we were taught something that wasn't wholly right. Maybe it was partially right, but not holy right how do we ever get back on course if we don't ask questions and so many people grow up in a faith that says you should never ask a question you should just trust me that's not faith that's not what the pastor who wrote hebrews meant that's not what jesus died on the cross for there is a place in faith that if you do not doubt or ask questions i doubt you have true faith which is very different from what you've probably heard before that says, if you doubt, you're not really a Christian. I doubt you are a Christian if you don't have any doubts whatsoever. Because you're not critically looking at the evidence to decide is this real or not. Because the thing is, if it's real, it changes us. If it's not real, we just make an imaginary kingdom in our mind and we try to live in that imaginary world. I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to spend my time doing this if it's not real. I don't want to do church. I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to sit in a chair. I don't want to do a Bible study. I don't want to do a Zoom. I don't want to do anything that has to do with any part of religion 
but there's no reality to it. See, faith does not ask you to trust in God in the absence of evidence. Faith says, I've looked at the evidence and I know this to be true, even if I can't tell you that all my hopes are exactly going to work out the way I think they are. But I trust because I know the foundation of reality are built on these things. Can we have that as Christians today? Can we have that when there seems to be a war between science and faith, which never should have been? There should never have been a war between science and faith. Never should have had conflict between the two. We made it that way because we started thinking about faith outside of our reason rather than using our brains to determine if what we believe in is true. All right, I got to keep going. You can hang out here forever. This means blind faith, which is held up as the oyster of, of great, a great prize to have blind faith in God, is not biblical. It is not good. Blind faith is not good. Why do you put your faith in something in which you cannot verify that it has any basis in reality? It is not good. I want to show you a clip from the third of the first three Indiana Jones movies. You, if you're an Indiana Jones fan, which means you grew up in the you know 80s. And 90s, you, you know, Harrison Ford made his pivot from Star Wars into the big screen into everything else through Indiana Jones. There is one scene, and if we're talking about faith, you already know what that is if you grew up when I grew up, and that is the leap of faith scene in Indiana Jones' Temple of Doom. Let's watch that. I'm going to narrate so you know what's going on. This is where Indy's dad has been shot, and he's telling him, you have to go through this gauntlet, these tests of faith, if you're going to save your dad. And he is based with the reality, a man of, of reason, of intellect, a scientist. He is having to go try to save his dad's life, and he's going to go through this gauntlet of faith leading up to this first trial. And just watch. He comes to the great chasm, a place where he can't see a way to go across. But if he doesn't go across, his dad's going to die because his dad's been shot. So he's looking and he's thinking, how do I get across? He says, I can't jump across. It's too far to get across. And here we see what has been attributed as faith for the last 30 years. And yet, this is not biblical faith. Oh, here's his dad crying in anguish. You got to have faith, he yells out to Indy. And he stands there, and the book says, You must take a leap of faith, blind faith. And so we have this iconic scene. His dad's trusting him and hoping he will believe. Here it comes. Here it comes.
There's nothing there. Will I take a step of blind faith? Now, folks, that is a stupid choice right there. Because I, he, he could have just fallen straight to the ground. That is not biblical faith. However, this clip is a beautiful picture of faith. We just have to wait a minute. Watch this. He takes a leap of faith. The bridge is there. Hey! And that became one of the top illustrations from that moment in sermons on faith moving forward. You just have to have blind faith. You just have to trust. You just have to step out into the abyss, and God is trustworthy to catch you. That's not biblical faith. But watch this. He throws the sand and reveals the hidden bridge. That is biblical faith. Now, what's the difference between the two? The problem with blind faith is that we trust in things that we ought not trust in. Abraham Lincoln helps us learn this lesson with this nice meme, and it says, don't believe everything you read on the Internet just because there's a picture with a quote next to it. Thank you, Abraham Lincoln. He was a man before his time, right? See, those are the kinds of things we tend to put blind faith in, and then the world looks at us and says, you dumb Christians. How could you possibly believe that stuff? And so then our friend Darth Vader helps to nail this point home, and he says, I find your blind faith disturbing. (laughs) You were wondering how Darth Vader was going to fit into this today. I know. You were. Blind faith is not biblical faith. It is not what we're called to. It is not what we're supposed to have. It's not what we're supposed to do. The reality is, is because we use our brains and because we use our reason, every single one of us has faith in something. Everybody has faith. Everybody has faith. The question is, is what do we have faith in? And I would submit to you that what you have faith in is the thing that you have seen with your eyes is real and there's proof to build your life on it. That faith may be God. It may be the God of the Judeo-Christian variety, or it could be God of a different one, or it could be politicians. It seems a whole lot of people in America have put their faith in politicians. I think that's crazy, but we do that. And maybe your faith is just in your own abilities, your own ability to make money, your own ability to get through life. Maybe your faith is just in your family. I can trust them. They're here. I can touch them. I can see them. I can smell them. They're here. And And you put all your faith in your family. Every one of us has faith because we all use our reason, our intellect to determine what is trustworthy for me to put my life on. Where do we as Christians fall in that? Where does that speak to us? Maybe the better question is this, and I want to share with you just for a minute. What evidences do we have that Jesus is our Savior and not just a good teacher or maybe even a lunatic from a long time ago? I will tell you this, in any evangelism Product, class, tool, way of sharing your faith. If you cannot answer what are the evidences that Jesus is real, then they won't matter today. There was a time that faith was social and that people, just because you were a decent person and you looked normal and you had a group of people that were fun to go around, that people would come to your church. But that's not the world we live in anymore. People are cynical. People doubt. People want evidence. If you don't have evidence as to why you think Jesus is real, then... A lot of people are going to ignore your faith or they're going to say, well, it's just fairy tales, which is what we hear over and over again. What are the evidences? 
This is why it's important that we question. This is why it's important that we have doubts because other people have doubts. If we addressed our doubts, we help other people address theirs. If we say you have to have blind faith and never doubt God, we take away the number one tool we have to demonstrate to a person this is real. Ignored doubts is not faith. That's what reason does for us. That's what intellect, that's what thinking does for us. You have to start with the questions. You have to start with thinking. You have to use reason. And as a believer myself, I have to demand evidence. Is this real? Is this true? To the apostles, they were a leg up on this. It was a lot easier for them. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what he says about, this is how he shares his face with others. Listen to this. He basically says, I've got 500 eyewitnesses to what I'm telling you is true. Wouldn't that be awesome? For I delivered you as of first importance that I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that... And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You can go find them. Here's their address. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Which is why Paul calls himself an apostle. Because an apostle means you actually sat under the tutelage of Jesus. You saw him. You know, wouldn't it be great if we could just say, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus. He gave his life to die on the cross for my sins. And you know why I trust that is because he walked out of a tomb under his own power after he was dead three days later. And you know what? I have evidence. I have evidence. There's 500 people that saw him. Most of them are still alive, and you can go talk to them right now. See, Paul and the apostles knew they had evidence. People in Jerusalem had seen it. They had heard about it. The whispers went around. They saw that the veil had ripped. They remembered the earthquake. They remembered the eclipse when Jesus died. All of that was evidence that this was not just some execution. Something happened here. Even the Roman guards looked up and said, you really are the son of God. There was evidence. But what about us? Because isn't that where we are today? Sometimes I think, gosh, it would be so much easier to have believed back then. But the statistics don't bear that out because there weren't just everyone didn't just become a Christian <laughs> right then and there. A lot of people still rejected it, which is interesting, isn't it? Have all this evidence and say, no, that I reject that. For me, I have different evidences that kind of encourage me to believe that this is true. One of those is scriptural consistency. Like there, there is no other historical fact that as, is as consistently documented as the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. No other historical figure in ancient history has been documented as thoroughly, exponentially more than people we absolutely assume are real. Thousands of documents that point to a central story that says this is real, that doesn't happen in the world. You'll read about Julius Caesar with 8, 10, 15 documents that say he's real, and you say, absolutely, he is real. And the thousands that say Jesus walked the earth, and he healed the sick and the lame, and he died on the cross, and he walked out of the grave. Thousands of documents that say this was real, consistent, not different stories, like, oh, that was a good story, I'll add my little spin to it. Same story, same Words found all over 
the civilized world at the time. Scriptural consistency gives me evidence that this is real. Scripture itself tells us if you walk outside, this morning I was driving out, and this deer starts to run out into the road, and so I stop, and the car next to me stops, and I look over, and there's his family over here, and he's like, oh, I'm in a bad spot. (laughs) So he turns around, goes back to his family, I'll go running back up the hill, and it's just beautiful. If you've never seen a deer do that, they're so majestic, the way they... They jump and they run. I mean, it's like they they just float a little bit. They're just so majestic. Many of you this past week took pictures of sunsets and sunrises, and they were spectacular. We look at nature. Oh, yeah, it absolutely could have just haphazardly come together like this. But for me, nature gives evidence that there is more going on here than just... This haphazardly happened. Even if it did haphazardly happen, the fact that this all existed that could create a system that life could be born out of it, that we could have social constructs and not just ourselves try to survive, but now we have to love and forgive. Ah, that's a big chance to say that just all by, that just happened by just chance. I see things like these deers prancing off the road. I just can't say, wow, those organisms just manipulated themselves into really a pretty majestic animal. Just by happenstance. For me, nature and scripture says you can't look at nature and not feel some sense of awe. Some sense of there is a design here. Some of the evidences for me as well is I trust the testimony of others, but I don't trust the testimony of everybody. I trust the testimony of others who have trustful testimony. Let me say that again. I trust the testimony of others who have trustworthy testimony. This has been a hard month. This has been a hard week for the church. Many of you have followed Rabbi Zacharias. He is one of the most prolific speakers of our time. He spoke all over the world. He was held up as one of the greatest apologists ever, certainly of our time right now. Thousands of lives, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives were changed as a result of his ministry and his speaking about faith and what it looks like and how you live it. And yet he died this past year. And within a few weeks, it began to come out that his private behavior did not match his public persona. Not only did it not match it, it was sickening, sickening behavior. And not only is that behavior sickening, those in his circle that are supposed to hold him accountable and make sure the message is real and true, covered it up, it appears, so that the ministry could continue. See, not all testimony is trustworthy. For the Christians today, if our outward lives are not the same as what we inwardly say we believe, it's not trustworthy testimony. Do we trust the testimony that's been given? got to trust the testimony of others who have seen it, who believe it, who said, this is the evidence. You see, the most effective way to share your faith is to say, let me give you the evidence for my faith so that they can see it as well. Personal experience is one I've talked about before. Personal experience is very important that you experience something that is real. But that cannot be the only piece. That, That can't even be the main piece. That piece comes after you've done the mental work of deciding, is this real? Then you can have a personal experience, but you don't just start that way. 
Well, you do if you're Paul and you're going down the road and Jesus appears in front of you. And I will say, across the world, there are places, especially in developing nations, where people have a dream about Jesus and which he tells them, go see this missionary in this town that they've never visited and this person they've never seen. And they go to that town and that person is there. Jesus still appears to people like that. But for most of us, and us in the developed world, it is rare if it ever happens. We are looking for evidence. Personal experience is not is a piece. It is not the whole pie. There has to be evidence of the goodness of God's promises. Whenever you forgive someone and you feel a release, when your natural self is to punish and to hurt and to hold on, and you say, no, I should, Jesus says the way to go is to forgive, and you forgive, and then the weight of the world rises from you, and you feel so light and free, and you say, that promise is real. We love people who are different from us in a world that says love people who are just like you but hate everybody else. When you love someone who's different from you and inside it begins to well up and your soul just sings for joy because I'm loving someone who's different from me. And you say the promises of Jesus who says love your neighbors is real. No, that's real. When you experience real love, sacrificial love, when you experience real forgiveness, you say the promises and what Jesus was getting at, what we're supposed to live in in our lives, like I do it and life is good. Even if I do struggle with sadness, because joy has room for sadness. There has to be more to life than just what we can see, taste, touch, or smell. There has to be something that we see that convinces us that I'm not just putting my faith in something that is all a fairy tale. There has to be evidence of this. You have to see it. For me, culture's absolute addiction to all things Judeo-Christian is evidence for me that Jesus is real. 2,000 years later, we have the blaring loud horn of a culture who says, you bunch of of make-believe people who believe in fairy tale, none of that stuff is real, yet they can't stop talking about it. Our horror movies are, what, 90%... Supernatural, directly taken from Judeo-Christian culture and teaching? Oh, none of that stuff real. But you can't get your mind off of it. What's the problem with politics? How are we going to get our country on the right track? we got to silence the Christians. Why? Because Christianity is real. This is real stuff. Culture's absolute addiction to all things Judeo-Christian tells me 2,000 years later, This is real. Jesus appeared to 500 people. This thing is real. All the evidence of every writer that we can find, not maybe not every, but thousands of pieces of evidence that say they got the story right for 2,000 years. What is your evidence that this is real? All right, I got to move on. I'm out of time. I got something else I got to say to you. The reality is because faith is a choice, we can reject what the evidence tells us. This is why Jesus says, those who have eyes, let them see. Those who have ears, let them hear. He could have just said, test the evidence. Test the evidence. But when we test the evidence, we have the opportunity to reject the evidence too. 
Oh, that sunrise. Oh, that's just a, a, a weird natural phenomenon that we happen to enjoy. Oh, this beautiful prancing deer up there. Yeah, that was just a, a conglomeration of cells that just happened to work its way out that way. Oh, you know, just reality is only the things we can put our two feet on. I'll never trust in something and hope in something that isn't right in front of me. We have the opportunity to reject what the evidence tells us. We don't see the same evidence. We don't look at the evidence the same way. We don't interpret it the same way. Those are all possibilities, but still we all have faith in something. It's by faith that we have a reason to believe the evidence that we see and that we hear. There's another aspect of faith. This is what I want to close with today. If you want to see an evidence for real faith, which is hard today because we are a a nation of, not a nation, we're a world of masks. It is so hard to see what's really going on inside the heart of a person. We are the best fakers on the planet. But the reality is that if faith is real, if it's based on reality, if it's based on evidence, and faith begins with our thinking and our reason, but the confidence it provides will move us to action because this new reality changes us. You've been a Christian as long as you can remember, but you can't remember being changed. You need to start questioning whether you really believe there's evidence for this thing you called faith in your life. Do you see and hear something that has is so radically, profoundly changed your understanding of reality that you yourself had to change? Because faith changes us. I'll just, let me just, I probably shouldn't say, pastors shouldn't say this. I just tell you one of the most, the biggest struggles I've had over this last year has been the reality that so many people will share a Bible verse and they'll follow up with some kind of message of hate towards somebody else. My struggle is that we often do church for people to walk in the doors and to be involved and to sign up to serve and to put some money in a plate. And we can say, look how many people came to our church and look how many people we baptized. And we see, sometimes we see change. Sometimes we don't. We used to say, I don't say, you'll find I don't say it much anymore at all because it is not helpful. I used to say almost every week when we started Journey, come as you are. I stopped saying it, not because I don't believe it. I think you absolutely should come as you are. There's no way to approach reality without total authenticity and freedom of who I am. And as believers, loving each other means I love you lock, stock, and barrel. I love you with all your ugliness. I love you with your brokenness. I love you with that big wart on the end of your nose. I mean, I hope nobody's watching has a wart on in their nose, but you know what I mean figuratively. I, I love you with all those tattoos. I love you the fact that you have a criminal record. I love you because you're a person, a fellow human. I, I just, I love you, but I stopped saying it because people want to come as they are and they want to stay that way. And you can't do that if you have faith. I should have split this up in t- over two weeks. I'm not. I'm gonna. Fin- I'm gonna finish. This is an ongoing. This is a conversation. Quite honestly, we're gonna have for the next couple of years. 
as I think about where we go from here as we relaunch after the pandemic, I will just tell you straight up, my this is where I am. <laughs> if this isn't real, can we please stop doing it? It's exhausting. It's exhausting. If this isn't real, can we go our separate ways and we can we find our way to just do life the best way we can get through it? But if it is real, can we live our lives like it's real? And can we change our community because they need what is real? That is what I want to do. That is what I want to spend our time with. It's exhausting to talk about faith and it be about feeling. It's exhausting to talk about faith and we never change. It's exhausting to have a a person to go out and say, this is what faith is, while he's abusing his massage parlor staff. That's not faith. That's not real. We've got to be on things that are real. We've got to be about a thing that is trustworthy and true. We've got to be about a thing that has evidence that says, I know it's true. This is what it means to know Jesus. This is what it means to be the church. Are we that? Is that what the church in America is today? Because if it's not, let's just stop. But if it is, let's tell the world that there's a reality that will change them forever. That is our calling. I don't know why I'm getting so worked up. I do believe it. The reality is is that faith always moves you to action. It always changes you. It's not faith unless you have to do something about it. Jesus was real. I have to do something about that. Jesus says, love your neighbor. I have to do something about that. Jesus says, pray for your enemy. I have to do something about that. This is real. Gosh. You look through in our sex-obsessed culture. We find it in the church. We should believe you shouldn't lust after your neighbor's wife or husband. You shouldn't steal. Kids should obey what hopefully are your wiser parents and when they tell you to do something and, and not have to have a constant battle. Those are all things Scripture teaches. We should forgive people who hurt us. We should avoid conspiracy theory. Did you know the Scripture says, do not associate yourself with conspiracies because you look like a lunatic. We're all about what's real. Christianity is not a conspiracy theory. It is not blind faith. You don't prove yourself with blind faith. That's why we live out God's word even if we're hated for it. That's why the apostles allowed themselves to be in prison, tortured, and killed. All right. I think I've ranted enough. But I'm going to leave you with this. Miss 10.17 Talking about faith says, so faith comes from hearing. That is hearing the good news about Christ. The good news is we have evidence. We have evidence. We don't have 500 eyewitnesses. But we do have eyewitnesses of people that have experienced that this is true and this is real. 
So if we reframe Hebrews 11.1, 1, I would reframe it in these two things. I have absolute confidence in Jesus and my hope in following him because of the evidence I've seen. I have absolute confidence in Jesus and my hope in following him because of the evidence I've seen. And the second thing I would add to that, but I don't have absolute proof about what he's going to do. So I live by faith. I have evidence he's real. I'm there. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to go wherever he's going and wherever he tells me to go. Even when I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen tomorrow. I have faith. I trust. I have expectation and hope. And I have confidence in him even if I don't know exactly how it's going to work out. I'm trying to leave you with a question each week. question for this week I would love for you to think about and to consider is which part of these do you need to work on? Which part? Because I've given lots of parts. I've given at least three significant parts. The first part being, what is the proof? Have you seen the evidence? Do your ears hear and do your eyes see that God is real? If not, work on that. If it's just because someone you like, they were really sure it was real, and so now you're sure because they're really sure, I'm going to tell you that is a terrible foundation for your faith. You've got to have evidence. You've got to have evidence. So do you need to work on the evidence? Do you need to work on the confidence? I have the evidence, but I'm not really confident in what God's doing right now, so I I, I just don't always trust him. Maybe you need to work on the confidence level in your faith. And you need to say, yes, he is real. Even if people disagree with me, people think I'm an idiot, but I know this is real. I'm going to trust him. I'm going the full distance with him. Or maybe it's the third thing. And that is the reality that if you have real faith, you have to act on it. You have to be changed by it. If you are not changing, you do not have faith in Christ. Now that, maybe careful I should have said this before. Let me be careful in a closer. We call this place journey because everyone's on a journey. We're all at different places. There is not the unbeliever and the super mature believer and nothing in between. It's this massive spectrum and you can be anywhere on that spectrum. This is a journey that we're on, but you should be on that journey, not sitting by a way station, just twiddling your thumbs. Do you need to change? I don't know which of those is the thing for you. Is this faith in this new reality changing you? What do you need to do differently? All right. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to quit. I love you guys. Thank you for letting me rant. I believe everything I've just said to you, and I mean everything I've just said to you. I hope you will join us on this journey as we go into this new reality, not just in faith, this new reality of this world that has changed after this pandemic. We have much work to do to demonstrate to a hurting community Jesus is real and he's needed. Father, God, I pray for those that are struggling with the truth of their faith. Is this real? Is this something I can count on? Is this something that really matters? Oh, God, show them the evidence. Open their eyes so they can see. Open their ears so they can hear. Let them see you at work. Let them see your hand. Let them study and research, is this story real? Father, you're not afraid of our doubts. I'm so thankful you're not afraid of my doubts. I'm so thankful you let me question you. You're so much bigger than my questions. You're patient with me. Father, 
don't let me live in that patience in such a way that I don't let this reality change me. Don't let us as a church sit and soak and not be changed and change others. Father, I believe that there are some things you want us to do that you want to bring real change in our lives right now. We're fighting you. We're fighting you because we're comfortable right where we are. And and having to respond to you like that, I just don't think, I, I sometimes we're just not sure we can do it. But God, you are changing us. Let us be confident as we come to you that you can change us. Father, I thank you that your love reaches out to every one of us as sinners, as questioners, as doubters. And you embrace us and you pull us in and you reveal the hidden secrets of the world. Let us not be afraid, but embrace the evidence that you are a God worthy of worship. And let us follow you faithfully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.